This is the Public Record Podcast, a public service of the Public Record, the Coachella Valley's Business News Weekly. I'm Managing Editor Ken Allen. Our most popular podcasts have been on topics related to college and career readiness. So today, we're going to talk about how to pay for college with Tina Steele, a nationally known expert on this subject. But before I bring Tina on, I want to set the stage with some stats and resources and some basic consumer advice on how to pay for college. Now, there are basically six ways to pay for college, and I'm just going to list them here briefly because I want to get on to our guest uh, without much delay here. Number one, pay for it yourself. Number two, grants. Number three, scholarships. Four, the method of last resort, student loans. And number five, I want to pause to talk about a moment. And this is probably the most important one. Be a savvy consumer. The best way to save money on a college education is to pay less for it in the first place. So for example, you can get a four-year degree at a local Cal State University for around $30,000. That assumes you finish it in four years. But if you do two years at a community college, get those first two years out of the way, you can bring that $30,000 down to about $18,000. Now, I'm rounding off those costs, and those only include tuition and mandatory school fees. They don't include living expenses, transportation, and books and supplies, because those will vary for uh, many people. But you can use that as kind of a ballpark to make a comparison. Now, here's something else to consider if you go the community college route. About a third of students who start a four-year degree don't finish it. Let me take another moment and say that again. About a third of students who start a four-year degree don't finish it. So then they're stuck with some level of debt, but no degree to give them that extra income boost to pay back the loans they were counting on. Now, let's also understand another important thing about student loans. Unlike any other kind of consumer debt, I can't stress this enough. If you go rent a, a more, if you go get a mortgage, you get a, a credit card, you get an auto loan, or you even have a, an emergency where you have to spend time in a hospital and uh, get a whole bunch of medical bills, in all of those cases, you can file bankruptcy and get out from under it and have a fresh start. The only exception is student loans. Once you incur that debt, you are stuck for life with that debt. So that being the case, I think consumer reporters would agree with me that taking on college debt is probably the most serious kind of financial obligation that you will ever consider in your life. So please, please think about it carefully. Number six, the last method to pay for college I'll just mention briefly is free training which can be had through military service in some cases. Some corporations offer tuition reimbursement, uh, usually with very stringent uh, requirements, but you can look into that option. And then some hard-to-fill professions like nursing and perhaps teaching sometimes offer programs that will have some sort of tuition forgiveness that you can look into. Uh, Those are some other options. But for most of the careers, you're going to have to find other ways to pay for your Uh, degree. And the final tip I want to give before we introduce Tina is every child by the time they're in the 10th grade and maybe even a little younger should know how to do a household budget. They should have some idea of what it's going to cost for them to live as an independent adult in a couple of their um, desired professional 
uh, directions, and perhaps even considering some cities they want to live in, before they start making these other financial decisions. So very briefly, have them sit down, make out a spreadsheet, have them pick out the careers they want, find out what the starting salaries are, find a net paycheck calculator online to calculate what their take-home pay is going to be, and use that as the starting point to calculate their monthly expenses and what they're going to end up with for pocket money at the end of the month. In summary, the cost of living is a concept I think every child really needs to understand before they start thinking about uh, financing a college education. So, now let's meet today's guest, FAFSA guru Tina Steele. Welcome, Tina. I have worked in college financial aid for just over 30 years now wow. at the public and private level. And I ventured off on my own about seven years ago to start this business when I really you know, saw a gap between the needs of students and their families and the available services that were out there to help with the financial aid process. A lot of young people are signing up for 10 schools. What is all that about? That wasn't happening in my day. Is this a thing where they yeah. look for the best deal financially from the different schools? You know, when students are applying for admission, advisors and counselors will tell them to apply for REACH schools, which are those colleges that might be out of REACH financially. They might not be quite academically qualified for. Uh, so they kind of have a pool of maybe three REACH schools. Then they have a pool of their middle range schools. So there's a good chance they could get in. It's more middle of the road price wise, not quite as much as the, the REACH school. And then they have their safe schools, which are the colleges that are gonna be more affordable, the colleges they know they're going to get admitted to based on their academics. So when you look at it that way, students are typically choosing two to three schools within each of those categories which is why 10 is a good average. Well, let's move into the main course here and talk about FAFSA. Uh, we're getting everybody engaged in that. I suppose off the top, people are wondering, well, what if I um, am undocumented as a student? What if my parents are undocumented? What if my parents don't file uh, income taxes? Uh, those are some of the big barriers I've heard. Tell us a little about that uh, problem. So when students have parents that are undocumented, they can fill out the FAFSA form with them. And instead of putting uh, social security numbers, they would just put all zeros for their parents' social security numbers. It can be a bit challenging when you know they do not file taxes and they're required to file taxes because if the parents report on the FAFSA that they're earning let's say a certain amount of income $25,000 a year and then that student gets selected for a process called verification which is when the, the college financial aid office would require copies of the family's taxes if a family is earning that amount of money and they're supposed to file taxes and they don't, that it can be a little bit of a problem. So my, my suggestion is to reach out to the financial aid office uh, at the college that you're planning on attending. If this applies to you, talk to them about the circumstances because there are some workarounds that they can do and they kind of look at each situation as on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, in your videos on your YouTube site, you had some tips on uh, how to avoid some common mistakes. Share those with us. Sure. Some of the most common mistakes in filling out the FAFSA form are mis 
reporting asset information, in particular parents, when they're filling out the FAFSA and there's a question that asks about parent uh, current investments. There are a couple of protected assets on the form that parents do not have to report and students for that matter. One is the value of any retirement accounts that you have and also the value of the primary home that you live in. You do not have to report that. And additionally, if you own a business and you have less than 100 employees, you do not have to report the business value. So some of the most common mistakes I see are families reporting this asset information that they don't need to report. Now, if you are 18 to 23, you have to include your parents. What if you wait till you're 24? What happens? So when you're 24, you do not need to provide parent information on the FAFSA form anymore. It would be based solely on your income information. You know, there are a few other ways a student could be considered independent and only require, you know, use their information on the FAFSA prior to the age of 24. And those include if a student is married or a student has a child of their own that they're supporting, or they are currently serving on active duty in the U.S. Armed Forces, or they're a veteran, or if at any time since they turned age 13, both of their parents are deceased, or they were in foster care or a ward or dependent of the court. Additionally, if they're emancipated, uh, they don't, they, they're considered independent. And then lastly, if they are an unaccompanied youth who's homeless or self-supporting or at risk of being homeless, they do not have to report parent information either. So there are calculators you can go to on the various websites. I know here in California, each, uh, uh, each state institution, that would be the University of California, the state universities, and the junior colleges, have a calculator where you can get sort of a, a final price uh, estimate. What kind of rule of thumb can we generally expect these free grants to cover? Is it about 50%? Is it 75%? What's the part we're going to be paying out of our own pocket? A student's expected family contribution in a lot of cases can actually be up to like a third of their family's annual income, astronomically high. Mm. So let's just say a student fills out the calculator and that his EFC is $20,000. What colleges do is they use the EFC to determine financial aid offers. So the government expects that that $20,000 is the amount of money that that student and their family can pay towards their education for one year. So then a college will take their cost of attendance, let's say the college costs $50,000, they subtract this $20,000 EFC to come up with a student's financial need. So in this case, that would be $30,000. The college then tries to package the student with as much need-based aid as possible to meet that $30,000 financial need. Now, this can be all over the place because colleges meet anywhere from 30 to 100% of a student's financial need. So a college that only meets 30% of a student's financial need might come back and offer a grant, you know, that's like $9,000, you know, of, you know, only meeting like $9,000 of that $30,000 versus a college that offers 100% of financial needs. So the grants, like the institutional scholarships can be very significant depending on the particular college, how well endowed they are, and how much financial need they meet. So this raises a really interesting question. What should parents and their children do 
when thinking about what they can really afford. I mean, it's one thing for the government to say, this is what you can afford, you just pay it. And Mm -hmm. the reality of what you really can afford. So how do you do that calculation? And should parents be including things like taking money out of their own retirement accounts to pay for things like this? It's, it's so difficult because I see it all the time where, you know, families, parents are taking equity out of their home and retirement money out. I think, you know, as a family, you have to really sit down and look at your finances and have this discussion with your child and know, okay, you know, think about what you're comfortable doing, what's going to work for you, you know, all in. Is it $5,000 a year? Is it $10,000, $15,000 a year? And then you really stick to that. So as you're applying to all these colleges, the financial aid offers are coming in, they're going to be really varied. But you know that your bottom line is this and you do not exceed that. A good rule of thumb for students that um, themselves are taking on loan debt when they graduate, their monthly student loan debt payment and this goes for parents also, should not exceed 8 to 10% of their total monthly income. And that would be based on like a standard 10-year repayment term. Student loans have a 10-year loan term to pay them back, but in a lot of cases, students can extend the terms for like 20 or 30 years. So you want to think about you know, that standard repayment of the loan and that monthly loan payment not exceeding 8 to 10% of what your expected salary will be when you graduate. That's great advice. And since you've opened the door to student loans, let's just go on to that part and we'll we'll come back to scholarships. So the government, when filling out the FAFSA, offers students what's called a federal direct student loan, but they do limit and cap the amount of money that students can borrow because they don't want them to get into too much debt. So for example, an 18 or 19 year old coming out of high school will see a federal direct loan award amount of about $5,500 their first year in school. And then their second year, they get 6,500. Their third and fourth year, they get $7,500. So those loan limits, you know, they're not based on credit. It's guaranteed loan money the student will get if they decide to take it out. Those are the federal direct student loans. Then beyond that would be what are considered private education loans. These are loans that a lot of different lenders offer to really help close the financial aid gap. Now, federal direct student loans, interest-wise, they do have variable interest rates. They change each year, but they typically stay around 3 to 6% with federal direct loans. With these private education loans, the interest rates vary significantly and are usually based on the prime rate, and they, they mm. can be variable and fluctuate. So, and they are also credit-based. So the, there's a big difference between the federal direct student loans and the private education loans because although students can borrow these loans to cover like the financial aid gap, they're going to need a cosigner because they're credit-based. And also, you know, if, if their financial aid gap is $30,000 and that's how much they owe to the school after financial aid is applied, they technically can borrow that total $30,000 in that private education loan, which I do not recommend. So while it's great to have these loans as an option to help close the financial aid gap, I see students get into a whole lot of trouble uh, borrowing way too much money in these loans. So interest rates vary significantly on those. And then lastly, there are federal, uh, federal parent plus loans, which 
are offered by the government. These are loans that parents can borrow on behalf of their dependent students. They're based on credit. The loan is not in the student's name at all. And again, parents can borrow the total financial aid gap in these loans. Do you have to go through the FAFSA program every year as you're going through school? Yes, the FAFSA is something that you fill out every single year because it's based on prior year's income information. So the government wants to assess that your family's situation in order to determine the yearly financial aid award amount. Okay, let's go down the interesting path of scholarships. And I can remember even today my own view of scholarships as a high school senior looking at these and saying, what? You want me to spend 40 hours filling out all these papers for $500 scholarship Mm -hmm. for... And who knows how many people are applying? There could be a thousand applicants for one scholarship. I mean, is this really worth my time? Right. There are a lot of scholarships out there. You know, scholarships are it's essentially free money offered by different organizations based on a student meeting a certain criteria. There's scholarships out there for students that uh, are based on academics and, and merit. And then there's scholarships out there for students that are based on a whole bunch of other things. Like, I mean, there's scholarships based on the state they live in, athletics, their interests, abilities, disabilities, you name it, there's probably a scholarship for it. But one of the, you know, while these are great because there are so many, one of the biggest problems is that they're very tedious to search for and apply for because a lot of scholarship applications require essays. And like mm-hmm. you just said, is it really worth filling out a lengthy, you know, writing a lengthy essay for a $500 scholarship? The, the key is to kind of learn which scholarships are less competitive, where to look. There's so many websites out there and also staying consistent. What I find with all the students that I've worked with over the years, the students who are applying for several scholarships each and every month throughout the majority of the year are the ones that are having the most success with scholarships. And once you start searching for them, you, you start finding different resources or, or a few different good websites that you know you're going to get some, some good scholarships from. And you know there's schol- there are scholarships out there that don't all require essays, it's just a matter of finding them. I usually recommend, you know, $1,000 or more, but any scholarship that's like $3,000 and less is going to be uh, not as competitive as those larger scholarships. So those are the ones that are worth applying for, like the $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 scholarships, because your chances are going to be better of receiving them. Now, there are full-ride scholarships that cover at least your four years, I guess, and then there are the ones you're applying for as a freshman that will end at the end of your freshman year. And I think this is one area where a lot of people get into trouble because as the money runs out going through your college uh, years, you uh, are you know more and more likely to drop out. So what advice do you have there? Yeah, so just know what the bottom line is when you're looking at these scholarships. Some scholarships, like you just mentioned, Ken, will only be for like one year, but there's a lot of scholarships out there that are renewable. So when it says renewable, that means a student can get that same scholarship for all four years, provided they're still meeting the criteria. So as long as you're applying for those renewable scholarships, you can count on them all four years, but yet just know, okay, I'm getting $5,000 in outside scholarship money for my first year, but I'm not getting that my second year. So you really need to think about what that bottom line is going to look like that second year and not bank on the scholarships, even though you might get some if you're still applying for them. 
You know, there are probably a lot of local scholarships that don't appear on those databases because they tend to be kind of focused to the local schools. How do you find out about them? Do you get on the phone and call the local Chamber of Commerce and ask what businesses are giving scholarships? Sure. There's a couple different ways. The first thing that students should always do is check with their high school, go right to your high school website, check the guidance office. There's always resources for like high school seniors or college and career prep. And most high schools will have like a resource listing of all the local scholarships within their community. Well, terrific. What other uh, final tips do you have to offer? You know, for anybody listening to this who is a high school student or who has a high school student, there are scholarships out there for students starting ages 13 and older. So freshmen, sophomores, juniors and seniors, you know, can, they can be applying for scholarships to help pay for college long before that senior year comes. And then um, get involved with different organizations who offer free resources or information about financial aid. You know, I have, I have, if anybody's on Facebook, a free Facebook group called Financial Aid 101 that you can join where I'm in there every day giving free financial aid advice and information and students and families can ask questions just so you're kind of getting yourself prepared for the process. What else do you do on your uh, consulting business there? Yeah, I offer a number of programs and services to help guide students and especially parents through the overwhelming financial aid process. My signature program is the Financial Aid Academy. I run it every single year from September to May, specifically for parents of high school seniors and helping them navigate the financial aid process and maximize their financial aid offers. And then I have a few standalone courses like a scholarships 101 course to help teach students how to effectively search for and find scholarships. And then of course I do offer one-on-one consulting services for families with anything they might need financial aid related. So the best thing people can do is just go to my website, thefafsaguru.com and and click on programs and services to learn more about that. Thanks so much, Tina. Have a good day. You're welcome. Thanks, Ken. The Public Record Podcast is a public service of The Public Record, the Coachella Valley's Business News Weekly. I'm Managing Editor Ken Allen. Thanks for listening.